My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media, this is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This is a reaction to episode five. Hey everyone, welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Amanda, co-host of Invisible Tears, and today I am here with Jane, our host, and Drew, our co-host, who asks fantastic questions for these reaction episodes. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. I'm here with you guys. Aw, we love you too, Jane. (laughs) Drew, how are you doing? Doing good. Good. Yeah. So today is a reaction to episode five. So Drew, do you want to start? Jane. What was your thoughts on Ginsburg's book? It was interesting to hear uh, Frank not to think too highly of it, um, but what were your thoughts? And do you think he may have just been focusing on Eva's portion of the book or did he read the whole book? Oh, I'm sure he read the whole book. I could be wrong, but it's been a long time since I read it. I know um, when I did my interview with him, I was very uncomfortable with doing the interview with him. I've always gone by the book, you know, as far as like um, facts about what had happened in each case. Uh, Now I'm finding um, with reading the papers at the library, that big black book, I'm finding um, the more Jen is investigating these different stories a lot of stuff in his book is misinformation. And I know because it is basically the only book out there about the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. People are going by his book thinking that because he talked to all these detectives and everything that the book is full of facts about what happened. And they're really not. There's some um, misinformation in there. But the last time I read the book, um, which has been a while, I wasn't really thrilled with it. I felt like it was, you know, obviously all investigative work, um, interviews with the police and Philpin, Dr. Philpin had a lot to do with it. Uh, 
but I, I I didn't feel like he portrayed the victims in a respectful manner. I guess is the way I could say it. Um, yeah, I wasn't always a big fan of the book. Well, Frank, Eva's brother, very apparently wasn't either. Um, he definitely called out that the fixation on um, Eva's sexuality. He even told Jen that I almost wasn't a part of this project. I almost didn't talk with you because he, you know, he, he wasn't sure if almost like she was an extension of this book or, you know, affiliated or, or anything like that. So that was interesting to hear that feedback. Oh, definitely. And I think he's the first one I've heard uh, actually say something negative about the book. I mean, I felt it for a long time, but to actually hear it from somebody else, it was almost like confirmation to me. Oh, okay. So you're not the only one that, that feels the same way. So yeah. Yeah. He was very open about the book. Now, I don't think that their sexuality has anything to do with them being a victim, even though it does turn out that a couple of them were uh, lesbian or bisexual. But what are your guys' thoughts? Do you think their sexuality had anything to do with them being a victim or is it truly just a victim of opportunity? You know, I'm going to stick with my first instinct. And uh, I've always felt that these girls' lifestyles had nothing to do with their abduction and murders. I really think it had a lot to do with simply being a victim of opportunity. I've always felt that way, and I still, I mean, there is nothing that has changed my mind about that. I definitely agree with you, Jane. It could possibly be a different story if we had a little bit more evidence of actual stalking from this monster, that then it might be a little bit of a different, you know, piece of conversation. But there really isn't any evidence in any of the cases that alludes to someone having a problem with a stalker or, you know, this this monster spending time, you know, watching these women. I think it is an interesting correlation, but I don't see how that like that isn't a feature that is outwardly visible. Like you you wouldn't be able to know that unless you knew these women personally. So I personally agree with Jane. I, I think it's more of a um wrong place, wrong time, victim of opportunity. I don't think that their um, sexuality really has anything to do with the profile. Yeah, especially with Eva. I mean, she did a lot of hitchhiking. She did not have a vehicle, but yet she always was able to get from point A to point B uh, with no issues. So she obviously did a lot of hitchhiking. And I I feel like if he was stalking her, he would have picked her up way before when he did and to do it in the middle of the day daylight you know that just uh to me if he was stalking her he would have more likely picked her up at night but I think he was driving by saw the victim of opportunity I think he was just getting out of work because the timing of um like the 11 to 7 shift that she was picked up in the morning so I think the timing of the eleven seven shift really connects to him just getting out of work and possibly driving to Claremont, driving home, or or I can't imagine he's hunting at 7 o'clock in the morning, but who knows. 
Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point with the possible work schedule, Jane. We should go back and look at each one of them. And now that we have a little bit better, like approximate times, go back and look at each one of them and see what day of the week too it was on. You, We could possibly develop some sort of possible schedule. Didn't we do that? We pinpointed the days of the week that they actually went missing. Yep. So when we combined our simple like overview uh, visual that we put up on our um, YouTube for our episode three that we put out for the Connecticut River Valley cases overview, where we just very briefly talked about each woman when we populated the dates, the day of the week was in that uh, visual timeline. I'm thinking now going a step further and trying to gather that information about the disappearance time as well with that day of the week might be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Might allude us to something, some sort of schedule or some sort of profession possibly. Yeah, exactly. You know, what's weird to me is like she went missing during the day and he brought her to her spot where he murdered her. So did he technically murder her during the day? I've always envisioned for whatever reason, I guess because of my attack being at night, I've always kind of envisioned her having to walk through the woods in the middle of the night to, you know, where he wanted to murder her. But now it's like a different vision. It's like, oh, wait a minute. She was abducted during the day. Did he bring her there and murder her during the day, which would really be odd. It'd be very risky. Very risky. Yeah. Especially us having been to the place where she was found. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was remote. It it was very remote, but it wasn't too, too far from the road. And there were, I mean, they were scattered and pretty far away, but there are people that live out there. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's an interesting point, Jane. I wonder if time elapsed somehow. Yeah. Did he bring her somewhere? Did he? Well, Kathy Milligan, she was in the daytime at the bird sanctuary. That is true. The next uh, woman that Jen will be talking about in next week's episode, Linda Moore. That was during the daytime. Yep. Good points. Bernice Cordemarsh during the day. Yep. It was like the afternoon, right? Yeah. 3, 3.30, somewhere around there. Now, uh, Elizabeth Critchley, what time of the day was her? She was during the day because it was right after her dentist appointment. Yeah, so really just uh, Ellen, Barbara, and you, Jane, were actually during the nighttime. Yeah. Wow. How come I didn't even pick up on that? That's weird. And Drew, you actually have the overview right there. So in in, in spitballing this and, and talking about this a little bit more. So Ellen, what day of the week was it that Ellen disappeared? Sunday. Okay. Jane, were you a Saturday? Was your attack on a Saturday? I was late Saturday, yeah, early Sunday morning, yeah. I was trying to get the um the days of the week for the women that were at night. Oh, at night. So it was, uh, and then Barbara Agnew was Saturday. So the only time that he was hunting at night was on the weekends. Yep, and then during the day. So Eva Morse was on a Wednesday. Linda Moore was on a Tuesday. Bernice Cordemarsh was on a Wednesday. Yep. So Kathy Milligan, it was Monday. So daytime attacks are during the weekdays. Nighttime Nighttime attacks attacks are on the weekends. It's interesting little tidbit. Mm -hmm. So I love the way that Jen covered Eva Morse as a person. She sounded like a great mother, um, which should have been the first key to the police to actually start looking for. The fact that she 
would not have just left her gone up and left her daughter. It was great to actually hear that, that she was a sweet person. And as Jen relays the story of what happened that day, it sounds more and more like she was actually going to a job interview, then going to see her girlfriend. The, I'm sick, I've got I've to go home, using that as an excuse for a job interview, lines up in, in my mind. So that's, that's what I took away from the story was, you know, more leaning towards job interview versus going to see a girlfriend. But do you have any conflicting ideas on that? I think she went for the job interview. And possibly going to the girlfriends after. But, I mean, the only time that you can go for a job interview or inquire about a job is when they're open. And obviously, they're only open during the day. And I think she felt like, um, this is my opportunity to just, I don't want to go to work. She didn't like where she was working. She didn't want to go in that day. And I think she felt like this was the perfect opportunity to go check out a, a new job. So, yeah, I, I believe that she was going. And why she didn't want her co-worker to give her a ride back to her house, too. Exactly. I agree with you guys. She didn't want anybody to know that she was going for the interview or inquire for the job. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. So when you guys found Eva's place where her body was found. Jane, you could definitely tell through the snippet that it really affected you. So much so that when you tell the story about how you really, you could understand what she was feeling, it was the first time I actually heard fear in your voice talking about these cases. Was it one of those moments that it really hit home and you did start to get scared? Or what were the emotions going through you? As soon as we got up to Unity in Claremont, that was one of the first places we went because we started driving by the road. And I'm like, that's the road that Eva's body was found. So we whipped right down that road and um, found the area. So that was like the first real place that we went where one of the bodies were found. So... When we got there, it was like, God, it was so emotional for me. So many things went through my mind. You know, the fact that, you know, two bodies were found there. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing nothing but seclusion. And and I hear this beautiful stream. But yeah, all I see is woods around us. And it was eerie. But yeah, it was almost like a reality check to me. That could have been my dumping ground. Jen didn't put that in there, but when we walked back to the car, I just sat in the car. and I broke down pretty bad. <laughs> and it just was such a reality to me. Oh, my God. This could have been my last place, my last visual in my life. And it could have been my dumping ground. This could have been where he wanted to bring me. And reality just hit me really hard. But then, yeah, I, I started thinking, oh, my God, I, I, I could envision every fear that they felt, every emotion that they must have felt, you know, not knowing exactly what he was going to do. Because I didn't know exactly what he was going to do to me. I think I was really envisioning that they had no idea what was going to happen to them before it happened and, and the fear that must have been instilled in them. Yeah, it was pretty emotional. 
was hard. I was more thinking of them, though, than I was thinking of myself. But that reality popped in my head. You guys could have been up there investigating my murder. The more I keep getting to know these women, I just wish so much that they could have survived like I did. Survivor's guilt. <laughs> We're their voice. We're their voice now. That's the best I can I can do. That's the best that I can be. I'll tell you, this one was the hardest to listen to so far. Eva was judged so many times for so many things in her life while she was alive. Um, you know, she was judged for being 17 and, and having a baby and wanting to keep her daughter. She was judged for you know, her lifestyle choice. And she was judged for her her appearance. And then she was judged after her murder and for her murder. It was, like, in one sense, so hard to listen to about Eva. But, yeah, I was so grateful to get to really know who she was. Jen done such a beautiful, elegant job at that. Really getting Eva's story out there. You know, I was judged. It hit home with me because I was also judged after my attack. And I understand people. <laughs> I really don't. But um, after I listened to this episode, I sat in my car and cried for 20 minutes. She never had a chance. Eva never had a chance she did the best she could for her daughter. She took care of her daughter. She wanted to keep her daughter. She raised her daughter. Her daughter was about 10 when she disappeared. She raised her daughter. She loved her daughter. She did the best she could for her daughter. But yet she was never given that chance to live a better life. You know, my life was crap when I was I was a teenager in, in my early 20s. But I was given that chance to improve my life and have a more improved life to live. And she was never given that chance. And I think that's what what I thought about the most as I was sitting in the car crying. She had such a rough life, and yet she was never given that chance to have a better life or to improve her life. Because obviously if she was going you know, wanting to get a, a different job. She wanted to improve her life and her daughter's life, but she wasn't given that opportunity. It was stripped from her. It was taken away from her, stolen from her. Yeah, I, I just felt so many emotions with this one, with this episode. But yeah, I'm grateful that I got to learn what I did about Eva. Yeah, the emotional gamut that you went through, it, it totally makes sense based off of what you have gone through too. I mean, personally, as I was listening to the episode, I mean, obviously I got emotional too. Hearing her treatment and what she went through in life and then just knowing how it ended and how she was treated afterwards. It's, if listening to this episode doesn't make you emotional, doesn't make you feel some sort of like compassion, um, then I don't know what will. Like I won't even repeat 
the chief of police's quote that Jen read in the episode because it was so appalling. Why on earth would someone say that? It, someone in a, a professional capacity, why on earth would they say something so appalling about someone? Literally just like degrading her and like degrading her appearance, degrading her lifestyle, basically putting everything back on her. So again, the police are making excuses for not doing their job and putting assumptions out there. I found it really, really messed up that the, it sounds like the first time that the police did anything was five weeks after she disappeared. They finally set up some roadblocks around where she had worked to like show her picture. Five weeks. Yeah. Um, I do want to address a couple of things like, um, the woman that Eva was seeing off and on lived across the street from Ellen. Yes. That was um, interesting. Again, small community. So, yeah, it could have just been a coincidence that she lived across the street from Ellen. But I thought that was something that was um, we hadn't heard before. Right. And that Jen had found. Yep. And her name was Deborah. Yeah. That tells me, or it gives me more, uh, more of an assumption that he's local, that he is very local to the Claremont area. I think that's just another clue that he's local. But I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, little fact that she put out there for, you know, the geographic part of it. Do you have anything else? The only other couple of notes that I had written down was. And I know we touched on this briefly when we interviewed Jen in her interview for um, Dark Valley, but because the state of New Hampshire didn't have a medical examiner at the time. Oh, yes. Eva's family being sent the bill for her fucking autopsy. Let's just, let's just sit back and think about that for a second. You have zero control over what the state actually puts in place, hires, or actually has working, right? And then you get hit with a bill because the state has to ship her body for an autopsy off to Maine. You get hit with the bill for it. That is fucking unacceptable. And, you know, that goes right back to, you know, one of the reasons why we're doing Invisible Tears. This is stuff that people do not realize that victims and victims' families have to deal with. The financial impact. And I'm not just talking about the funeral or anything. That bill that they had to pay to have that body transported, that was just absurd. I, I couldn't believe when I heard that. But yeah, I could because this is something that victims and victims' families have to go through that people just don't know and don't realize. Back in the 80s, they didn't have GoFundMes or anything like that. So this family literally had to flip the bill for that. And uh, I, I can't understand that there was not a program in New Hampshire that did not have this. There is now the Victim Compensation Fund. Because of you. Yeah, but it's like this is why one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast so people knew that stuff like this, victims and victims' families, you know, this is some of the stuff they had to deal with, not just the loss of their loved ones. 
I didn't have to deal with just the, you know, my attack. This is after the fact. This is after all this. And on top of that, that, you know, families and victims have to deal with. It's crazy. Absolutely insane to think of. But yeah, just generally speaking about the episode, man, it was such a powerful episode. And Jen did such a phenomenal job in capturing the type of person that Eva was in life and how amazing of a person she actually was. And so for that, thank you, Jen. Yes. Thank you, Jen. Uh, You know, she obviously loved her daughter. Her daughter was her life. She was a worker. One of the things I liked the most about her was she didn't give a shit what people thought about her. (laughs) She did not give a shit. She was going to live her life her way on her terms. If you didn't like it, oh, freaking well. She wasn't going to change. She was not going to change the way she looked. She was not going to change her lifestyle choices. She was not going to change a single thing for anybody. You either loved her, liked her the way she was, or it didn't matter to her. She didn't care. Uh, That's what I got out of this episode is that she just did not give a shit what you thought of her. And I absolutely loved that about her. Loved that about her. And I want to just briefly talk about her daughter, Carrie. We did ask her to be a part of this project. And we totally understand why she decided not to uh, and respect all her, her decisions for not wanting to. She's very nice and very sweet and very compassionate. I do believe Carrie is doing very well for herself. And um, we wish her all the best. Uh, I can't imagine being, she was about 10 when her mother went missing. And I just cannot imagine how much this had to impact her life. Her mother, the only one that she that really took care of her, that loved her, that nourished her, that worked hard for her, that gave her everything she could possibly give her. And then one day, uh, her mom's gone, and she's 10. That's a very impressionable age to lose the only parent that you know. But my heart goes out to her. Carrie, you're always in my thoughts and my prayers. And your mom will never, ever, ever be forgotten as long as I live. So the episode ends, Jen, talking about the next attack that happened Mm -hmm. in Saxons River. So we won't go too deep into it. But this is the first time we really heard that there was PSAs coverage about the text and talking about don't go hitchhiking be aware of your surroundings and whatnot i wonder how far out that coverage went was it just in the claremont area and is that what led up to the next attack in saxon's river and all of the questions surrounding that because he did seem like he was out of his comfort zone so we'll definitely touch on this a little bit more next week's reaction episode because i know jen will be tackling this next victim but hearing about the coverage in the psas does provide a little bit of clarity as to what happened at that scene yeah this was the first time i had ever heard of of psas or any sort of any sort of communication like that going out to these small communities so i think that's a fantastic point 
So it essentially stopped right in this area. In Claremont, yep. And that was around the time that they had started the task force too. Yep. Yep, because after this, the next two attacks were in Saxons River and then um, Heartland, Vermont, off of 91. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in-person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.